Hi, and welcome to another episode of Playing in the Sandbox, Conversations in Pedagogy. My name is Katie Troyer, and I'm so delighted to once again be joined by Lauren Malone. Hi, everyone. Um, so today, what we are talking about are some next level ideas for online and Tiger Flex teaching. So we know that uh, everybody has had about a, a semester and a half to get acclimated to this new environment. And some of you are doing some pretty cool things. So we've been listening to those and we want to give you a few extra tips on what you can do in your classroom. Yes. And I would like to say it's really important that you think of these as next level um, because this is the like you've run out of creative ideas because this has been a draining semester oh good lauren has all these ideas that she is going to shower you with that you can just kind of grab um so that's that's the key is that these are these are things that are not necessarily best practices but really like once you've mastered um the basics what to do next absolutely so the first one that we're going to talk about is podcasting in the classroom. And so a lot of us are really thinking about screen time um, and ways that we can kind of get students away from the screen since we're doing so much more of it these days. And podcasting part of your lecture can be a really easy way of doing that. Podcasts are what you're listening to now, just audio recordings. And sometimes they include music or sound effects, but they can just be straight up your voice. And so podcasting part of your lecture has um, a few different benefits that Katie is going to talk about. Yes, yeah, so we decided to break down um, each thing that we'll be talking about into what students get and then what you as the faculty member get. And students get a couple of things. Uh, one, a lot of students listen to podcasts anyway, so it's it's them getting to participate in a, in a medium that, that they really relate to. And you can encourage them to listen while they're taking a walk or just being outside um, or doing the dishes or anything that allows them to not be on the screen. And so less screen time is, is one of the big things they get out of it. But in the process, they also get a different processing skill because it's, it's listening as opposed to viewing, which can be really helpful. Uh, there are lots of things you get out of it too, though. If you have multiple sections, you only have to do it once. And then you know for sure uh, that you will be telling each section the same thing um, in the same way. And that can make it really easy for you to sort of standardize your sections. But it can also be helpful even if you decide not to ultimately use the, the podcast to share with your students. Um, it can just be a great way to sort of listen to yourself lecture. I know that I have a tendency to... Um, lecture a little bit more fluidly than I do give a, a formal presentation. Um, and this can be a way for you to sort of listen to your strengths and maybe areas for improvement as a lecturer um, and to kind of see where you need to, to rework or like refocus on some of your core concepts. And as for how to do podcasting, it's really simple. And um, even if you decide to add some extras to it, so it's not just your voice, there are things that you can pick up pretty easily and pretty quickly as well. So the main tools that people tend to use 
for podcasting are Audacity, GarageBand, and Anchor. And all three three of these are recording software that you can use. Uh, and they're all free. So Audacity is a Windows-based one. GarageBand is more Mac-based. Uh, and then Anchor is mobile, which is helpful because some of your students may be working um, just from their phones. Uh, and this gives you a way, if you're assigning podcasts, for them to still participate. But even if you're just podcasting your lecture, um, it can be nice to kind of work in the same way that students are going to listen so that you can make sure that um, all of the tech is matching up. And then also free music archives are really good. And you can just search Creative Commons for music to get to this uh, website. Um, and it's got a lot of free different styles, different genres of music. Um, one of my favorite things to do is just search documentary music and pull up some nice background music for whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, so those can be some good tools to use. So I have a question. Um, a lot of people this semester have started recording their lecture like as a video. What would you say is the main thing they need to keep in mind that sort of is different between recording a video lecture versus recording an audio lecture? Oh, such a good question. So I think the biggest thing is that when we're recording video, we have the benefit of facial expressions and whatever hand gestures we use. Um, if we've got PowerPoints, those things. When you're recording audio, everything's coming through your voice. And I know that sounds super obvious, so I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, sometimes when I am lecturing, I talk with my hands all the time, but especially when I'm lecturing, I point to things or I kind of mime how things work, if it's a process or if it's a tool that I'm, um, that I'm giving an example of. But you have to make sure when you're recording that you're explaining things fully and maybe even in explaining them in a couple of different ways so that students are are really internalizing what you're saying. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest difference and can be the biggest challenge as you're getting started. And this is why I really encourage you to maybe start with kind of a shorter lecture and listen back to it. Um, it's tempting to just do a recording in one take and throw it on to the internet or onto T-Learn. Um, but if you listen back to it, you'll catch, oh, I probably should give an example of that. Or, oh, I kind of mumbled my way through that one part. Maybe I should go back and re-record that part. So it's good to listen to yourself. Um, but yeah, just making sure that everything is coming through in your words, uh, in your voice, in terms of emphasis and those sorts of things. And you've also also required them to listen to external podcasts. Yes. So that way, if you don't feel like you're quite up to podcasting yet, um, but you've liked the idea of your students being able to be away from the screen, you could find a, a podcast that's already existing on the topic. Absolutely. And there are podcasts on absolutely everything. So it's just a matter of you searching uh, for your topic and finding ones that you um, that you enjoy and you think are, are relevant and, and well done. Excellent. So what's another next level idea? Uh, the next one I have is something that I've talked to a few people about already, which is Discord. So Discord is a um, it's a mobile application, but you could get to it through your desktop as well. Um, and basically, it's a chat room. 
if you want to think about it that way. So they have uh, different terms, and we'll talk about that when we talk about tools. But basically, the two main ones that you need to know is the server, which is your chat room as a whole, and then your channels, which are the different little um, pieces of the chat room, I guess. So just as an example of that, I have a server for um, the National Novel Writing Month that we did with some of the students here at Trinity. Uh, and there we had uh, channels for brainstorming, so conversations just around our stories and how to work through certain things. We had a general chat channel where we could talk about anything. We shared lots of memes. It was lots of fun. Um, and we also had some voice channels where we would meet up uh, and kind of like on Zoom have uh, different discussions. And so there's different things that you can do on Discord, but it's a really great and powerful tool and students are already saying that they really like it. So Katie is going to give you some of the benefits. Yeah, so students really like it in part because it's a break from Zoom. And I think we are all zoomed out to such a degree that sometimes even using like Google Meets feels different, um, even though it's the same sort of thing. So some of it is just a break from Zoom. But what I think students really appreciate about it is that it, it simulates um, the sense of community that they have in those first few minutes at the start of class when they're talking about, you know, random things and feel comfortable talking about, you know, like their pets or um, the fact that they have a, a party for their birthday coming up. Um, they don't always feel comfortable posting or saying those things on Zoom because that feels so, so much more official. But uh, Discord can be a great uh, way to have, like, you could have a channel that's, you know, pet pics um, and everyone just kind of throws up a picture of their pet um, and, and just kind of communicates uh, that way. And so it, it is, it's a low stakes way of communicating that doesn't feel as official as Zoom. And there are so many things that you as the professor can get out of it. So one of the things is, is that you have a sort of real time outline or transcript of the course of what's happening, um, particularly if you're using it during class time um, in sort of in exchange for Zoom, it would kind of keep track of that. It would help keep track of major discussions without any extra work. So yes, Zoom will allow you to have chat records, um, but it's separated by each Zoom session. Uh, whereas this would just kind of keep it by channel. So if you had a channel that was, you know, um, topics about or things about our final paper, you'd just be able to scroll back and see all of them. Um, if you download it as an app onto your computer, which is what I have done, um, it notifies you when you when someone posts uh, and something that, that has your name attached to it. And so this can be a good way for you to pay attention if students, um, for example, are asking questions about the paper and you know it's a question that all of them would benefit the answer to, instead of having to send out an email, uh, you could just kind of have a channel that says, you know, things you need to keep in mind for your final project. Um, and then when someone asks a question, you would see it and be able to post. So I just think it's a really nice alternative to uh, Zoom, but also to some of the slightly more clunky, shall we say, elements of T-Learn. Absolutely. And in terms of tools, um, everything you'll need is right there within Discord. Um, so again, we talked about channels and the different, um, different basically discussion topics that go with each one. And this is really important. I want to just build on what Katie said about it being a low stakes way of communicating. Um, because we're all at home now and we're all kind of in the work from home mode, all of our boundaries have kind of shifted. And so a lot of times students don't know when it's okay to talk about certain things or they don't want to bring certain things up because 
Um, it feels too serious, maybe even on that level of the spectrum. And so having those different channels where you have the channel for class discussion, the channel for ongoing questions, the channel for help with projects, um, or each group channel, uh, if you split your students into groups, um, but then also having the pet channel, having the cooking channel, having, you know, your channel for memes and fun stuff, uh, that can really be helpful because the students are looking for that sense of community. Um, and there it's a, it's a good way of giving them those boundaries, but within this one specific tool. So channels are, are again, probably the biggest thing that you need to know about. Um, but some smaller things that you should know about are roles. So you can actually define certain roles for students, um, and yourself. And so, um, if you are, for example, breaking your students off into groups, then you can add to certain students. So let's say you have 15 students in your class, you can give five of them the team one role, five of them team two, and five of them team three. And you can make a channel for each of those roles where it's locked for people who don't have that role attached to them. So anyone who is not in team one wouldn't be able to comment in team one's channel. Now, this is also a really good thing to teach digital literacy for students, because even though if I'm on team two and Katie's in team three, we couldn't see t- or we couldn't comment on team one's channel, we can still see team one's channel. So it's a good way to teach students about what um, what is public space in digital environments. Um, and then also you can assign roles um, if you're, you want students to maybe moderate uh, another good digital literacy assignment so they can moderate certain channels and that gives them certain permissions. Um, and you can also just assign roles for fun. So if you end up having a really hilarious inside joke with your class for the semester, you can turn it into roles and let them have fun with it. Um, there's a widget for T-Learn, and that's just a little mini tool, basically, that lets you um, take a little bit of code and pop it into T-Learn, so that way students can see who all is on Discord at that time. And that can be really useful because sometimes students are like, oh, no, I have a question, um, and they might email you, but they might kind of need an answer right then. So they can take a look at T-Learn, see, oh, these three people are on Discord right now. Let me go ask my question and maybe get some help from them. So that's good too. And this last tool for Discord is a little bit more advanced. So this is for those of you who might know a little bit of code um, or know about these different web tools on a little bit better level. But there are bots that you can program for T-Learn so that it takes away some of the work that you have to do in moderation. So there are um, search bots where you can uh, program them to find specific things. Uh, So if you have, for example, keywords that you want to see, if they're using them in the class discussions, you can have a bot that looks for those. Um, And there's also ones that will help you define roles. So once you have your roles um, created, then instead of having to you go in and put them in for each student, the student can actually just request team one 
right? And then the bot will give them that role. It makes it a little bit easier. But again, that's a little bit more advanced. Um, so all of the rest of it is sort of baseline stuff, really easy, really quick to get into. And that's the more advanced, um, more advanced one. And I'm so glad you mentioned the digital literacy aspect because a lot of companies, um, because everyone's having to figure out solutions to being uh, remote, are using um, things like Discord, right, to or Slack to to communicate. And so I think the the sooner we can help our students sort of understand um, the decorum, right, I think the better. What if people have heard of Slack, which is um, sort of a similar-ish feature, what is it about Discord that in your book um, makes it for you p- particularly a preferred option? <laughs> um, so for me, I think I would veer mostly towards Discord. Um, and again, this is just for me because Discord is a little bit less formal. So if students know about these tools, Discord versus Slack, a lot of them know about Slack in terms of, um, maybe a business setting or an internship or jobs. Uh, It's talked about a lot in in the business world and it's used um, in in different companies as well. Um, Whereas Discord, um, usually they've heard about that really specifically in terms of the gaming community, but it's not only for gaming. Um, There's Discord servers for absolutely everything. Lots of students um, at all different schools use it for study groups and those sorts of things. Um, and so for me, I like a little bit less of the formality, um, just because if they do then want to go find a server that's a study group or go find a server that if they're in my black pop culture class that talks all about living single or something like that, that's one less um, step, one less uh, account that they have to build and sign into and maintain. Uh, So it's kind of everything right there and we're not making them go to a bunch of different places. That makes sense. So what is another next level idea that you have? Um, Interactives or interactables, interactivity, whatever it is you want to call it. So there's lots and lots of different tools out there where you can give students something to engage with. And this can be while the lecture is going on. I know some of y'all aren't really comfortable with the multitasking part of lectures, though. So it can be um, pre-lecture activity, post-lecture, kind of an end-of-class activity where you might normally do an exit card or note cards or something like that. Um, But there's lots of different ways that you can kind of mold interactivity into your course. Um, So... Katie's going to talk about the benefits and then I'll talk about some examples. Yeah. So we all know because we've been um, doing this now for a while that, that it can, it can be hard sometimes to concentrate um, or harder to concentrate uh, via zoom or online versus in person. Um, It's just so much easier to get distracted on your computer by other things. And so what, what these interactives do is it really helps students to stay in the moment um, and to, to know that they are, still active 
not just participants, but members of the learning experience, that, that their learning is just as much a part of the course as is the content that they're being given. And so it allows for active learning opportunities, allows for interactivity. It can also help uh, decrease some of the anxiety of students uh, in terms of the cold calling effect. Um, I think that, that cold calling on Zoom can be even worse than, than maybe cold calling in class. And so if students, for example, see um, when they're gonna be called on to participate verbally. You could even break it down to, you know, um, for this question, these three people are going to answer, right? Like you can really break it down so that so that there's a little less anxiety because students know when they're participating and how. What you get is a whole bunch of great stuff. Um, you get engagement beyond breakout rooms. I think we've all discovered by now that breakout rooms can be a great source uh, or resource, but they also can fail. Um, and, and they can fail in part because I think sometimes we, many of us at the beginning sort of assumed that it was the equivalent of putting people in small groups in the classroom and just talking. But that doesn't quite work because you really need to have clear deliverables. Um, and so interactivities offer a clear deliverable. Here's what you're going to do and here's how you're going to do it. Um, it also allows for various ways of you being able to visualize the engagement in the class um, and to measure engagement so that participation need not simply be um, participation in the larger class discussion. It could be them um, doing something or articulating um, an idea or, or manipulating something. And then it can just allow for, for them to engage with resources that reach beyond the course, that, but that still tie in very nicely to the course. Um, one of the things that interactivities, I think, work really nicely for is to help students to take the content you've given them and to be able to do something with it. Um, and it could even be something like, um, now that you've talked about the class, I want you to create a nugget. Uh, what do you think was the most important thing about today? And can you create that in, you know, um, a visual or something like that? So it just allows for some really great back and forth relationships, I think. Absolutely. Um, so some tools to do this. Uh, the first one is kind of the one that is easiest and most of us know about. It's just straight up PowerPoint or Google Slides, depending on which you use. You can do this with Prezi if you use that or... Um, notes is that the mac one um the slide any slideshow that you're using so um like he kind of mentioned earlier it's really easy to build in moments in your lecture where students are called to do something um and so if you're giving a lecture um then it might be something where you have your first four slides where you are lecturing is normal, but then that fifth slide asks three students in the class to think about a certain topic um, and maybe answer a question or ask them to, hey, go ahead, you three, and go find XYZ uh, in a Google search and add it to our class Padlet, something that everybody can see in real time. Um, something like that. And so again, it's exactly what Katie was talking about in terms of giving them something to do that is still very much a part of the class, still very much um, them engaging in the lecture. Uh, but it's, it's adding that level um, of engagement beyond listening. Uh, and beyond, um, you know, re reducing the anxiety, this can also reduce a little bit of, uh, of that wait time you might have. So we all have wait time when we're in the face-to-face -face classroom, but usually, you know, students speak up pretty quickly when we ask a question, but 
with Zoom or whatever you are lecturing over at, at this point, uh, there's that wait time because of the regular stuff, but there's then wait time because people are trying to figure out, oh, am I muted? Uh, is someone else about to speak? Oh no, I just talked over so-and-so, uh, that sort of thing. And so when you have these specific slides that say, hey, this half of the class is going to do this, um, we're going to keep going with the lecture, make sure you're adding your answers to Padlet or whatever, um, then that reduces it or, you know, calls on students specifically so that, again, they know when they're going to be asked to participate um, and you're still getting that good discussion um, so it can help keep that discussion going. Maps and timelines. So there is a lovely place on the internet called Night Labs. Night as in knight in shining armor. Um, and they make lots of different interactive tools that are super, super easy to use. A lot of them are just built on um, uh, Google Sheets. So things that you just plug stuff into an Excel spreadsheet and use that and they kind of do the heavy lifting of all the coding for you. But there's timelines, there's maps, there's different sort of interactive pictures that you can make or you can ask students to make. And these can be really, really useful, especially in terms of what Katie was talking about for the breakout rooms. If you're still using those, um, that's fine. But one of the things that we rely on in face-to-face -face teaching is those non-verbals, right? So seeing that a group has finished talking or seeing and hearing that students are off task, and we can't do that in Zoom breakout rooms. And so this can be something where if you do just kind of want them to have discussion, it can be centered around, hey, go to this timeline of these different concepts and I want this group to talk through this year, through this year, this group to talk through this year, through this year, so on. Um, and then they're given something specific that they have to do. You can also add something specific that they have to come back with that's based on that timeline or that map, whatever interactive feature you've had them um, had them work with. And so that can help uh, that can help there. And again, these are really easy to make. And then lastly, uh, things like ThingLink and Wakelet. So ThingLink is an interactive picture site so you can make different interactive pictures and it can be a regular photo that you would just snap outside um, when you're on a walk um, or it can be an infographic that you made it can be really anything but it allows you to actually um, add different points of interactivity. So if I have a photo of uh, Lost Maple State Park, I can put little dots around it at different places, and one of those dots might be a video that I've added um, that's something uh, that the students can watch. One of them might just be text uh, that tells them a little bit more about something specific. So that's really good. And then Wakelet is actually... Um, it's a resource building site. So if you have an account, you can basically make a timeline, um, almost like you would see on Facebook or one of your social media sites. Uh, but instead of it being a timeline of 
other things that people have shared and said. It's a timeline of all of the things that you found around the internet around one specific topic. And so students can save these things to their wakelet. And that's what we mean too by resources that reach beyond the course. Because when you have that at the end of the semester, it's not just that they have their, you know, three essays and a test that they've done. They've ha they have this living dynamic thing that they've built along the course of the semester that they can then go to if they are, um, you know, in another class going, oh, I remember talking about this in this previous class. There was this article, I know it's there somewhere, instead of having to rack their brain for it, they've got it in their wakelet and they can uh, use it as that sort of um, real-time transfer tool. I think one of the things that I love so much about the interactives is that you've described everything from something that would take like 15 to 30 seconds to, um, you know, something that could take half an hour, 45 minutes for the students to do. And, and that's, I think that's one of the real strengths of this is that regardless of your um, preferred teaching style, regardless of how much time you have, there is a way to build an interactive element into every class period. Uh, and that's, that's really lovely. Um, okay, so what is another next level idea that we could do? So let's talk about academic making and project-based based learning, or if you uh, prefer um, project-based assessments. Uh, so these are different things that actually get have the students get their hands dirty, basically. Um, so different ideas in terms of what are the concepts we're studying, and what are the ways in which students can show me that they know these concepts by actually going out and creating something or doing something um, building something, basically. Uh, so we've got some tools that we can talk about, and Katie's going to give you some of the benefits. Yeah, so one of the, the real benefits is that it, uh, for students is that it allows them to have a diversified learning experience. Um, they, they are accustomed to, to learning through tests um, and through lab work and through papers. Um, but this gives them an opportunity to, to sort of push beyond sometimes their, their boundaries of where they're comfortable. But I have, I don't think ever had students overwhelmingly, um, say that they didn't like doing this sort of, of learning. Now, that doesn't mean every single student adores it, but it means that at the end of, of every semester that I've done some sort of project-based learning, um, I've always had students who said, yes, it, it was painful maybe in the moment, but it was one of the best things we did. I want you to make sure to keep this for the next course. Um, and, and one of the advantages is, is that oftentimes we mistakenly uh, create a, a spectrum with creative on one end or making on one end and critical um, on the other end. And that saddens me in, in every way possible, right? Because because they're truly not, uh, you know, it's not a dichotomy, it's, it's truly um, integrated. And so one of the things that this can do is it allows students to have ways to apply critical thinking beyond the classroom. I'm not just asking them to make a project um, or to just make something. I'm asking them to apply the theories and ideas and research that we've been investigating all semester into this to this project. Um, I did something like this for my FYE this semester. They had to do an annotated bibliography. They had to do um, a, a short research paper, and then they had to transform those ideas into their interpretation of something. So I was still really getting that critical thinking. 
And as the professor, one of the things that I got was um, I got to sort of have a course that had differentiated assessment opportunities. Uh, I think it's really important to remember that um, the more we can diversify the the types of, of ways we're assessing our students learning the the better off everyone will be because our class will have really allowed them to use learning in a way that is more applicable when they move outside the classroom um and because most of us most of us don't find ourselves being tested um nearly as much outside of school as we were inside school um and so it allows for that it allows for a practical application of concepts and it can allow for a really immersive learning environment that is a little bit different than some of the more um, what we identify as traditional assessment methods. And I think one of the things that I, I know people always get really anxious about um, is they'll say, well, but I'm not good at making, um, I'm not good at creating, so I don't feel comfortable doing this. Um, and I, I understand where that comes from, but I, I think we need to remember that, that all of us make, all of us create. Um, it's just that we may create, for example, um, lab experiments, right? That's still a creative act. Um, it's just not maybe the way that you've always thought of the word creative. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of keep in mind that we're not we're not encouraging everyone to ask their students to write haikus um, at the end of the semester. We're, we're just saying that there are ways that you can have them apply things that go beyond um, some of the more traditional forms of, of assessment. Absolutely. And just to kind of kind of add on to to what you said about that anxiety is something that I run into along with that is the idea of, well, how do I make it fair? If we have these differentiated assessment types, especially if you're doing things like me and giving students um, different projects where they can pick from, how do I make it fair? And if one student, yeah, I've made videos before, so I feel comfortable assessing them, but I am terrible at the internet. So if this student is over here doing a WordPress site, what do I do? Um, the biggest thing for me has always been tying it into course outcomes. The more specific and pointed your course outcomes will, can be, the better these differentiated assessment types, these um, academic making projects can be. Um, so once you know that what you're looking for isn't, um, okay, this person over here built a birdhouse, this person over here built a website. What you're looking at is, did they actually have X, Y, and Z in terms of concepts demonstrated? Um, that usually helps. And it also helps with that anxiety in terms of you as the instructor doing the assessment. And we're more than happy in, in the collaborative to, to help you build rubrics. Um, to help you build a rubric that would hold strong regardless of what people are submitting or a rubric that's tailored if you have a very specific making um, or project that they're engaging in. So that's that's one of the things that we do all the time um, because you're right, it can be very overwhelming to feel like you have these two very different projects. But um, it's possible to have a rubric that says, does the form and content have a relationship? Does the form and content speak to the following learning outcomes? And every single one of us has evaluated those multiple times. Um, and so it's just kind of figuring out how to take what you already know how to assess and laying it over uh, this project. Yep. So some tools for this. Um, lucky for all of you, Trinity has a makerspace. Um, so there are 3D printers, which I'm in love with personally. Um, but there's, there's all sorts of different tools in there um, for 
again, letting your students get their hands dirty, do some building, um, and apply some concepts. Uh, but there are also virtual maker spaces, and these look a little bit different depending on which ones you're picking, uh, if you're kind of building your own from ground up, or like what you want to do digitally. But just as an example, um, I have a uh, an activity that I do every semester with my rhetoric students that has them build a um, an instruction manual with no words. They get Legos and they get a camera and that is it. And they have to build something and then build an instruction manual to teach other students how to replicate their Lego creation. Um, and so I was really worried about how on earth I was going to do that since we are not face to face anymore. And then I found an actual Lego site, um, online. So there is a space online where you can, um, basically build Legos. They don't call them Legos cause you know, um, they don't want to get sued. Uh, it's called Mecca bricks, Mecca with one C, um, and it's it's a little mini Lego studio and it's perfect and I can still do my favorite uh, in-class assignment with my students. So the digital and virtual maker spaces um, might look a little bit different. You might have to do a little bit of searching to find um, your happy place, but there are some out there. Uh, there's also Google Sites, which we have as Trinity faculty as a part of our Google suite. Um, and these are super easy uh, um, websites that the students can build. Uh, it basically gives them uh, a website broken down into building blocks. So you don't need to be able to code. You don't need to be able to know the first thing about web design. It gives you the different tools that you need to get through it, which is really nice for the students who um, haven't done that sort of thing before. And then there are also um, different uh, different external website builders like WordPress and Weebly. There are different external graphic design uh, applications. Adobe Spark, Canva is a favorite of a lot of people. And those are other uh, just other spaces where um, making things comes into play. Obviously, we do have the Adobe suite. So if students are getting into things like making movies or um, any kind of uh, photo manipulation and want to use those, then they have those available. Um, but there is uh, kind of that beginner set of tools that's online and free that students can work with. I think the one thing that's important to remember for project-based learning, though, is that if they are going to be asked to learn a new software or a new process, um, you really do need to build that time into into the course. Um, and I don't mean that you have to devote a class period to it. What I mean is, is that um, Adobe Premiere has a steep learning curve um, and you need to build into um, the project. You would never just be like, hey, this 5% of your grade, you're going to make a 20 minute video. Um, because just the amount of time it will take to learn Adobe Premiere, not even including the amount of time it will take to make a 20 minute video, um, is really intense. So there are ways that you can um, lessen some of that cognitive load. I built a template for my students for on Google site. And I said, here's what I want you to paste in all of these places. I don't want you to worry about how it's going to look. This will actually make me happier because <laughs> it will all look the same. Um, and it didn't take me that long to do it. Um, and I could have easily had my peer tutor do it. So I think it's just keep that in mind. That is the one thing I think for project based learning 
mean is that um, there's often a, a software or um, a hands-on commitment that requires some additional prep time. Absolutely. Yeah. I had my students do, I have my students do a game jam every semester where we take a couple weeks and we build video games together. And leading up to that, I have 10 minutes every day where we're playing with the software. And then on the day um, or days of the game jam where they're actually um, building the their project that they're working on for the unit, um, I have a really huge cheat sheet of all the code they need to know. So it's not something where uh, they're like, okay, I know we went over this two weeks ago, but I do not remember how to add sound to to this video game or whatever it is. So yeah, I think it's really important to um, give them bites of it before the, the full full course meal. Yeah, absolutely. So all of these have kind of had a, a similar theme in that they're kind of ways to go beyond the the Zoom experience. Um, so what is our last sort of like next level idea that you have for us? All right. So these last few tools that we have are, again, things to kind of try and extend our classroom space um, outside of the Zoom classroom. So trying to take advantage of things that would be similar to um, maybe some activities we would do if we were face to face, uh, but also things that incorporate process into the learning. So allowing students to really work through how they process things and what their particular workflow is. So Katie's going to tell you some of the benefits and then I'll go over some tools we can think about. Yeah, so as Lauren said, one of the biggest ones really is the the opportunity to to get outside of Zoom for both the students and for you. Um, but what's nice about these sort of um, you know the breaking out of the the like the film version of the Matrix um, is that just because we're still socially distanced and just because we're still remote doesn't mean that we can't still engage in experiential learning, um, and it doesn't mean that we can't still engage in some of the this sort of development of thought. And so some of the things that students get out of it is the opportunity to have some experiential learning, to have some sort of real world, real time learning where um, it's in the moment and it feels a little bit more, um, it can feel a little bit more authentic and a little bit more timely for them to engage in it. And it can also help with their professionalization because not only are they possibly working with tools that they may work with um, later, but they are also gaining what I think all of us would agree is an incredibly important skill set, and that is the ability to understand their process and how they break down their thinking um, and how they move from point A to point B. And so this allows everyone to kind of see that process and to, to to visualize it in some really interesting ways. So what you get out of it, in addition to having just a little bit more um, non-Zoom time, is you can get some higher levels of engagement. As we talked before, um, as we all search for ways to have engagement that might extend beyond uh, oral participation, this is a great way to see where your students are engaging, where they're struggling, because you're, you're seeing it all along the way. Um, there's a lot of scaffolding happening. Um, and scaffolding also means that there can be some applied learning assessments because oftentimes you're getting to see them apply their skills to um, an investigation or to a case study or to a field trip, or you're getting to see them apply the content to their process of um, moving through a, a paper or a report or something like that. Great. And so I'm going to talk about some tools that we can use to build some of these learning experiences. Um, And the first kind of set that I want to talk about are virtual field trips or digital scavenger hunts. Um, And so these things are um, 
taking advantage of VR and AR, so virtual reality and augmented reality. And I know that those words are kind of scary for some of us, but really it's easy to jump into. If you can take a picture with your smartphone, you can absolutely put together a good um, virtual field trip for your students. So um, the the app that you would need for this is called Google Street View. And this is going to allow you to take 360 pictures of a certain spot. So if, for example, I'm doing um, a class on pop culture in San Antonio, and I want them to explore a few different aspects of the Riverwalk, I can go down there myself and using Google Street View, just take a few 360 pictures at the points that I want to highlight. Um, and then when you get back into your workspace, whether um, you're working from home or you are coming into the office, there are a few different things that you can use um, those pictures that you took in to create the virtual field trips. Google actually has their own app, but they're currently migrating it and morphing it a little bit to make it more powerful. Um, so look for an update from us on what that's called when they pick a name. Um, but there's also things like Story Spheres, Round Me. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about ThingLink. That's Thing like Thing 1 and Thing 2 and Link like an internet link. Um, so those can all be used to build these different virtual field trips where you have the different pictures uh, and then the points of interest that the students will interact with. Um, and so that's one option, but you can also make some really cool uh, digital scavenger hunts with things like action bound or uh, story maps through night labs. So those are some tools that are pretty easy to pick up pretty quick. And most importantly, they're free. So they're not going to cost you anything extra to use. And then when we talked about professionalization and kind of integrating process tools, it can be really um really great and really beneficial for the students to integrate tools like Trello and Asana, which are just card-based, or uh, if you want to think about it as sticky note-based uh, project management tools. Um, so integrating those into your projects or whatever it is that you're doing, the work you're doing in your class, even if it's um, even if you're writing papers the whole time or they have tests coming up, really having them do that metacognition of thinking about what they have coming up and how they're going to work toward it. Um, and then there's also one called Mural, and it does sort of the same sticky note thing, but there's a lot of different um, different formats that you can do. So you can use it for brainstorming. If your class, um, I know especially for business students, if they work on Agile, um, kind of an Agile framework, then it's really good for that. It has all of the different um, sort of Agile uh, boards that you can go through. Um, and then it also just has different ways of conceptualizing projects from mind maps um, to different concept boards and project boards. And so getting students using these tools can be a really good way of having them slow down the process. So instead of just thinking, OK, I've got an essay to write. I'm going to maybe outline if we're lucky, <laughs> uh, but mostly just jump right in and start writing. Um, it slows it down and it makes them think about each step um, and the time frame it's going to take for each step. And so integrating those tools 
can be a good way of, again, that metacognitive part of learning, but also that professionalization, because as they do go on into whatever field they might go into, it's it's uh, likely that they'll run into some sort of project management system that they will need to use. So those are our last tools. Excellent. Um, and as, as both Lauren and I said, you know, um, we are taking these ideas in part because we're hearing about similar things um, or, or really sort of next level ideas that the current faculty at Trinity are engaging in. And so we encourage you to, to reach out to us, but also to reach out to your colleagues um, because just the, the amount of creativity that's, that's being illustrated in really sort of taking things up um, to, again, that next level has been really impressive. So what is our next episode going to be on? Our next episode is going to be on lecturing. So we've done some out-of-the-box things, but we're going to talk about sort of the staple that everybody is familiar with and how to make sure that we're giving the best lectures we can be giving. Excellent. And we'll keep that that framework of lecture within the bigger sort of framework of, of this idea that, you know, we can be engaging and, and meaningful play, even in something that doesn't sound like meaningful play, and that is the lecture. So thank you so very much. Uh, Join us next time.